0: My name's Nick, if I haven't met you, uh, lead pastor here about to get us in God's Word. So you can open up to Luke chapter 14. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, as always, it's our gift to you. We um, really see our main purpose here is um, spreading the Word of God. Uh, so it would be our, our joy to give you give you the Bible. Or if you know someone who needs it, feel free to take it. But this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, so in your uh, Bibles it's going to be the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and then chapter 14. We'll start reading in uh, verse 15 and go all the way down to verse 24, and then after that I'll pray, we'll dive in. All right, Luke 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, this is Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. God, we begin, as always, with a posture of humility beneath your word. We recognize that at the same time we are both under your word and we, in another sense, want to be over it. What I mean is, God, is we want your authority to be over us, but then we recognize that we want to build our lives upon your word. The things that you speak, the things that come forth from our king's mouth, the things that God would speak to us, we we recognize as bedrock beneath our feet. As we go, we don't shun the hard words, we don't hide from the things that you say, we take them serious and I pray that every heart in this room would take your word seriously this morning. There are some sobering words in this text. The reality of hearts that wander. Hearts that make excuses. People that miss your banquet. God, I pray that would not be true of us. I pray that you would use our time this morning to realign reorient restore us to yourself let our affections be single God would you be our first love our highest love our supreme love and treasure Jesus name Amen I'm going to do some real quick catch up work just to kind of, um, locate us in, uh, the Gospel of Luke and kind of where we are, uh, with this text. Um, because I think, kind of, if you notice, dove right in and you may have even been at first there in verse 15 kind of wondering what was going on. I just want to catch us back up on that and, uh, then we will, we will dive into these, uh, verses in particular. But remember now, we are still kind of in the same scene that began back up in verse 1 of chapter 14. Uh, it was a Sabbath day, and Jesus, being uh, somewhat of a prominent rabbi in the area at the time, uh, would be invited, uh, he was invited, over to this house of the ruler of the Pharisees, we're told. And uh, this guy's friends were all there, the, the lawyers and the Pharisees, and they're sitting around this table enjoying this meal together. And Jesus um, has been talking, he's been monitoring, seeing, kind of watching what's going on, and he's been discussing things with the people around the table and kind of addressing uh, the various groups that are there one by one. What we uh, see in verses 7 through 11 um, is that he's addressing those who were invited first. First he's talking to the guest list, as it were. Um, because he sees how when they all show up at this guy's house, they're vying for the place of honor. They're wanting the best seat next to the host. And he's, uh, yeah, well, the way that I picture it is almost probably, if you ever played um, musical chairs or something when you were a kid, right? And there's, there's three people and there's two seats of honor. I'm not going to let you get that. See, I'm going to dive on that thing if I have to. That's the sort of thing Jesus is witnessing in this place. And he goes, wait a minute. I need to talk to those who were invited for a moment. Why are you fighting for the place of honor? Much better, he says, would it be for you to take the lowest seat. And then later, later, if, if the host comes to you and says, hey, wait a minute, that seat's too low for you. Step on up. You'll be honored. Far better that than if you go thinking you're awesome and the host comes taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm sorry, sir. Step down and you'll be shamed. He's talking to them uh in this moment. Verses seven through eleven. Then around the table he turns his sights uh towards the host himself. First he's addressing the guests, now he's addressing the host. And he says, Listen, what you've done here, all well and good. This is a great party, this is a fun uh feast, this is a this is a nice banquet. I appreciate this, but uh if I could just say I think you have it all backwards. I think you've got things upside down. You see, I'm looking around the table, and what I see are, are all these people just like you. The people who made the cut, the people who made the guest list are all your bros, all your homies, all the people that look like you, talk like you, think like you. Also, they're the people that will pay you back. You've got a good give and take. You know when you invite them over, they're going to invite you over next week. He said, no, no, you've got, you got this all backwards. Here's what I would love to see. Verse 13, he says, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So he's just talking with these, he's just blowing paradigms right now. Just, just, just messing up their world as they sit around this table. He's got these guys that are uh, self-assured, self-confident, self-congratulatory. And he's kind of coming at them saying, wait a minute. You've missed the heart of it. And you're in danger of missing the banquet that really matters. You may get the place of honor here. You may like this little thing you've got going at your party here. But you just might miss the only party, the only table, the only banquet that really matters, the one that's in the kingdom of my Father. Well, as we move now then towards our text for this morning, what we see is that Jesus is yet once more needing to address this issue, and the whole parable that 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 uh, our text is the whole parable that comes out is in response now to another man around the table who says something. Let me show you uh, what happens here. So Jesus is talking to the guests and he's talking to the hosts. And if I could just be frank, he's, he's warning, he's even rebuking, right? And all of a sudden, one of the guests around the table, it's amazing. In verse 15, we read this. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, these warnings and rebukes and all this stuff, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that, and I don't know what you see when you read that. When I read that, my first response was, Really? Brother, he's talking about you. He's talking about you being in danger of not being around the table in the kingdom of God. He's talking about you as you fight for the seat of honor that on that day you might find that God himself says, step down. You thought you were great. You're not. You're not right with me. Brother, he's talking about you. And now you're going to say, blessed, what great news! Woo-hoo! He's warning you, sir. It's the sort of thing, right, that we're prone to, I think, as well. And it's one of the reasons why I bring it up here at the beginning. When Jesus says some of these harder words, or he gives these warnings, and even these rebukes, is it not true that we're always kind of prone to think, yeah, but not for me. Like, okay, for my coworker, certainly. For my spouse, probably. Let's be real. But for me, come on. Me and Jesus are tight. I'm good. Blessed are all who get to eat bread around the kingdom, right? Around the table in the kingdom. That's me. <laughs> you and me, Jesus. He's going, huh? You don't get it. So the whole parable that is our text is addressed, if you look closely, to this man. So Okay, let's talk about this again. Let's cover this one more time. Let's come at this from another angle. But I'll tell you, just before I look at that parable, I want us to think, even even as we begin here, I want us to be alert to the fact that we can do these things, that we can read this text and kind of go, yeah, but not for me. And I'd invite you um, to pause even in these moments. Open your heart. I'm going to open my heart up to God and just say, please, have at it. You have access. Come in. Touch the things that maybe I, I wouldn't want you to touch. Say the things that maybe I wouldn't otherwise want you to say. You have full security clearance to come into the inner chambers of my heart and shift things around, bring things to light. I don't want to be this guy. I'm in the place of honor. Blessed are those who eat. No, you're not. And no, you won't. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want you to be that guy. Let's kind of say maybe what David said in Psalm 139. You remember this? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Like, I need you to come in. And search me and know me, because I (laughs) self-deceive. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Say that. Open your heart up even as we begin. But here we go, verses 15 to 24. We're looking now at this parable addressed in particular to this man who speaks up. But really, we know to all of us as well, there's warning here, no doubt. But there is also invitation into something more. Anytime Jesus warns, anytime Jesus rebukes, that's not the end game. That's not the end of the story. It is always an invitation into fuller life. It's an invitation to turn. Turn and come the arms are always open even as he is warning now i'm going to bring out three things for us to consider this morning um first a surprising threat second a fundamental love and then third a compelling invitation so let's uh begin there with a surprising threat um the sad reality about being a pastor and a preacher is that I'm aware that most people will never remember uh, what I preach on from week to week. If I were to sit you down right now and have you just pinned in a corner, you know, at a coffee shop, whatever, and I said, what did I teach on last week? I don't know how many could answer that. That's a depressing reality, but I think it's part of the truth. Sometimes, if I'm honest with you, I don't even remember what I preached on the other week. Somebody said, I was so encouraged by your message, uh, uh, last week. It was really, and I was like, what did I teach? You? I don't know. Oh, that's right. Okay, okay. But I'm aware of this. But there are times, there are times where certain sermons in the right moments, God just kind of cracks open something in your life. A lightning bolt just kind of strikes from the heavens and something moves. And there are certain sermons that, that, that you'll remember for your whole life. Because they just shifted things for you. I hope that all sermons are doing things. It's just more indiscernible. Um, And it's just slow going and over time. But there are going to be those ones that strike like lightning. And the reason why I say this is because I sat under my previous pastor in St. Louis Obispo for, I I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. I loved every minute of it, but I can only remember a, a handful of sermons in particular in his sermon on this text, it's one of them. I mean, I went back in the archives to try to see if I could find it, even, and it's so long ago that I, it's been paved over, you know, with the, with the how the ever the internet works on their website, you can't even find it anymore. But something happened when he opened up this text for me, uh, where I was in my walk with Christ. There was something I would never saw before, and this really opened things up, and it might just do that for some of you. I suppose the thing that struck me most is what I'm referring to here as a surprising threat. It's really, if you notice, I don't always have subtitles for my uh, sermons, but this morning I put in a subtitle. It's really what I'm trying to signal to there when I say that uh, when good things keep us from the best thing. That's the piece that surprised me. That's the piece that was drawn out from this text that I went, no way. Good things can keep us, you and I, from the best thing. Good things can keep me from the kingdom of God. Um, we all, for some reason, I, I think, we kind of come into Christianity, and maybe we're still there, but we kind of come into Christianity with this externalized view of it. And this externalized view of good and bad, and even if you're not in Christianity, that's kind of what we do is, here's the bad list of things, don't do those, here's the good list of things over here, we want to move towards those and move away from those, and if we can kind of do that, we're fine. If we're not doing too many of the the red letter bad list stuff, then surely we're good. But in our text, that whole dichotomy that we set up is brought into question. Or even more, I mean, if the lightning bolt were to strike anywhere, it strikes that. (laughs) It destroys that. Because here's what we see. Those who are missing out on the kingdom of God in our text are not those who are running off after the things we might think of, right? like sex, or they're not swindling people in the marketplace. They're not those who are, you know, uh, given over to booze and drugs. They're not Satan worshipers. They're not new agers. They're not angry atheists. Want to know what they're, 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 they're? They're busy with good things, doing good things, taking care of good things. They're distracted by good things. They're not on, you know, the internet on porn in the middle of the night. They're not snorting crack. They're not doing any of the flagrant crazy stuff that we think, oh, that's the bad list. They're doing good stuff. And because of that, they're missing the best thing. It blew my mind to see that. It shifted my paradigms. It exposed my heart. These are people who overvalue good things. They're distracted by good things. They're unduly attached to good things and it's keeping them from the best thing, namely God and His kingdom. So look at that parable again with me, if you would. Um, Presumably, the the invitation went out an initial invitation, as it were, went out uh, uh, many days prior, well in advance of the of the the feast of the banquet. Okay, and then uh, these guys all RSVP'd and said yes, that sounds good. But then the day came for the banquet, and a second invitation is issued now, saying, "Hey, listen, it's ready. Come partake." make haste, get over here. I mean, You couldn't just call them up on cell phone or blast a text out. So you had to kind of make sure. And, and, and time was a little bit uh, more difficult to come by and not as exact. And so they'd have these ways of dealing with these dinner party affairs. And he says, listen, the food's hot. Come on in. It's going to be ready. But instead of making haste, what we see is that one by one, the invitees who earlier RSVP'd begin to make excuses verse 18 but they all alike began to make excuses the first said to him i have bought a field and i must go out and see it please have me excused and another said i bought five yoke of oxen and i go to examine them please have me excused and another said i've married a wife and therefore i cannot come Did you notice the excuses? Um, I, I didn't see, uh, here's what I didn't see on the list. Hey, the banquet sounds great and all, but I think I'd rather be sleeping with my neighbor's wife. Or hey, actually, the homies and I are going to go out later today and, and get smashed downtown, so sorry, I can't make it no, I don't belong in that crew. I prefer to kind of run with those who lie, cheat, steal, right? No, you don't see any of that. You see good stuff keeping them from the best thing. You see you see guys who say, hey, listen, uh, I have a field. I have oxen. I have a wife. I mean, what do you say to that? He brought out the, the, the wife card. I, he's got to go home. If the lady needs him, he's got to go, right? That's what you think. That's what we would think. These are good things. What? is going on here one commentator notes that what we see here really boils down to matters of property and possession occupation and family which he says these these comprise the essential commitments of life These are God-created things. These are God-given things. These are God-blessed things. These are essential things. And so we say, who's going to possibly find fault in someone who needs to go focus on some of those things for a little while? Well, I'll tell you who God does. God does. That's the point of this parable i mean the punchline comes at us down in verse 24 i tell you none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet why because they were too busy with their field and their 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 animals and their spouses too busy too distracted too attached couldn't make time you go wow this this is crazy what is this saying about me? So what we're seeing here is that all three of these men with regard to this banquet initially accept but finally refuse. When the time comes uh, for the banquet to actually come, uh, they, they have all uh, every excuse in the book. They're interested, it would seem, so long as it was convenient. So long as it fit in their schedule, so long as it didn't demand that they sacrifice or surrender various earthly, worldly pursuits that they had. But the moment there's a rub, the moment they realize, oh, uh, ooh, that could hurt my bottom line, uh, ooh, that could affect what I had planned for the weekend, ooh, uh, I'm not so sure that I want to get, they politely, respectfully decline. their hearts are not in it they have other more pressing things to attend to now here's what started to shift for me and i hope it shifts for us what we start to realize what jesus is bringing out in this parable i think is that what makes something good or bad is not is not nearly so externalized as we think something like sex can be a wonderful thing it's a gift right? Something like wine can be a beautiful thing. All the things we sometimes put on the bad list aren't necessarily always so bad, and the things that we put on the good list aren't necessarily so good. The thing that that makes the difference is not what is on that list, but how our heart is engaging the thing on the list. What our heart is doing with the good stuff over here, the list that we keep, our possessions, our spouse, our kids, our whatever, our property, our, how the heart is engaged, that's where things are, are moving from good to bad or not. And that's what Jesus is Coming after here, is it wrong to have property or possessions or an occupation with responsibilities or a spouse and family? Certainly not. But if your heart attaches to these things in such a way that they become ultimate for you, take priority for you over the kingdom of God, over the things of God, over the word and the ways of God, well, then watch out. We might put it like this, and I think I have it in your handout because I wanted you to think on this with me. A good thing becomes a bad thing for us when it becomes an ultimate thing. And you know, you say, how do I know if I have one of these ultimate things, these things that are, you know, taking priority or have my heart unduly attached more than it's attached to God? How do I know that I have one of these good, now bad, because ultimate things? Well, you know it's become an ultimate thing when it's an unsurrendered thing. In other words, when there, when it's something in your life that you just kind of wrap your hands around and keep back here in the shadows and say, yeah, God, you can have everything else but not that. I don't want you to touch that. I don't want you to change my plans with that. I don't think I can put that on the altar. I'll give you everything else. What do you want? But you leave me that. Let me tell you something, if God doesn't have everything, then truly you've given him nothing. Do you understand that? It's crazy, but it's true. Do you have any of those unsurrendered things, those things you say, I'll trust you with the margins here and the stuff out here, but this this is my treasure. I don't just give that to anyone. I'm not giving it to you. No, you're at risk of excusing yourself from this banquet if you have unsurrendered things in your life. I think of it like um, the way that Job talks, or actually I think it's God talking to Job in this moment. He says, were you there when I said to the sea and its waves, you shall go thus far and no further, right? Some of us do that. What God did with the sea, we do with God in our own lives. He will go this far and no further. Ah! That's mine. If that's where you are, you're at danger of excusing yourself, politely even perhaps, from the table of the kingdom of heaven. I suppose what we're really asking in all of this, if we were to put it bluntly, is do you have another God? If God is your God, then everything, everything in your life will be Uh, laid at his feet, surrendered to him in love and trust, you know he will do right with it. But if something other than God is your God, then everything else in your life will be laid at its feet, (laughs) including God, his word, his ways. That's ultimately the question that we're asking here. Do you have another God? Because if we do, we are at risk of missing his banquet, and I will tell you something, if there is something in your life right now that, that your heart is attaching to, there it is your treasure, and you will not let it go, you're white-knuckling that, I will tell you something, it will be, that thing will be your undoing. Do you understand that? It will be your undoing. Now, this moves us towards um, this idea um, of a fundamental love. So we saw the surprising threat of good things that Jesus is talking about in this parable. And he's talking about that to get at now this idea of a fundamental love, a fundamental Love, your fundamental love, if I were just to give you a definition, though I know I'm just kind of reiterating here, it's your deepest attachment, your ultimate allegiance, your supreme treasure. It's the thing you love more than anything else. You think life will be found there, joy, pleasure, identity, so you're willing to let all else go to get it, and you're willing to let all else go to keep it. This certainly is what Jesus is getting us to consider, I think, in this parable. But then, I I didn't read this, but following right off of our parable, I mean, Luke knows what he's doing he immediately appends another scene where crowds are following Jesus. And he says something that that cuts straight at this in an even more aggressive fashion. Uh, We're going to look at uh, verses 25 through 33 of Luke 14 next week more in detail. But I did at least want to bring out a few things for you this morning, just so you can see what Jesus, Luke, God, the Holy Spirit is after with us. I think in many ways this clarifies and sharpens what I'm talking about here in this parable. Verse 25, again immediately following our text. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then drop down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. <laughs> what You could just you take a line and draw that circle. Everything in your life and say, if you can't renounce all of that, Jesus says, then the Christian life can't even get started for you. Do you get that? You can't even be my disciple. This sounds so hardcore, it's probably why that whole division between, I'll take Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Some people are extra holy, and they'll do that. <laughs> they'll be a disciple, and he'll be their Lord, but I just want him to kind of cover my sin and get me into heaven. People tried to do that theologically, but it doesn't work. It's it's To be a Christian is to be a disciple, and he's saying, if you can't let go of everything, if, if everything in your life is, is not a surrendered thing, That's what taking up your cross and following me means. Take up your cross and die to everything. If you can't do that, then this Christianity thing won't even get off the ground in your life. And we'll talk more about what he's saying there, why he uses, uses such stark language. Obviously, we know He's not asking us to break the, the the you know second greatest commandment and hate everyone. I hurt you all. Oh, finally, I got permission from God. So I've been wanting to say it, but I thought He wanted me to be gracious. No, He's saying you have to have one fundamental love, and everything else is surrendered to it. Everything else is laid at the feet of it. And if you noticed, he doesn't. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I want you to hate doing drugs. I want you to hate things like, you know, murdering people who make you mad. I want you to, to hate, you know, uh, adultery. He just assumes that. He picks out all these good things, all these God-blessed, God-given, wonderful things It says, I know they're good. But if they become ultimate, they will destroy you. If they become your fundamental love, and he's saying you can only have one, then what will happen is, 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 is you will sacrifice everything else to it. That one fundamental love will influence and shape everything else in your life, and it will destroy you. It will misshape you. But if God, if I am, your fundamental love, then yes, it will shape everything in your life, and yes, everything will be surrendered to it, but let me tell you something, it will be shaped for good, and life will start to come in every avenue of your, of your, your life. Now, his words sound, perhaps, harsh to us, but they're logical. The logicals. cults. And I'll, to help you see this, and depending on the time, I may revisit the, some of this next week, but um, to help you see this, let me give you a few illustrations. Let me show you how your one fundamental love will shape, influence the rest of your life, whether for good or for bad. Let me show you why Jesus is going after your heart and that place and saying, let everything go. And if you have one thing, it will destroy you. Think of um, something we talk a lot about here in Silicon Valley. Think about your work for a moment. Think about when work becomes your fundamental love. If your career is where you think you'll find your life, your identity, your pleasure, your meaning. Think of how everything will be shaped by it and sacrificed to it. You'll sacrifice your wife and kids, right? You've got a family. Well, you'll find them on the altar being devoted to the God of your work. It becomes the new norm for dad to be gone. Forgot a birthday last year, forgot an anniversary last month. But they're getting used to it. Because I gotta be here. I gotta make something of myself. This is where I'm gonna find it. Right? You'll sacrifice your own health to it. Can't stop. No time to eat lunch. Eat lunch while I'm typing. I have an assistant to feed me while I'm going. 'Cause I can't stop. I got caffeine running into my veins, right through an IV. Keep it going. I got to outproduce the next guy. I want my name in the lights. You'll sacrifice the word and the ways of God eventually. Start watering down your faith. That's not going to help you climb the corporate ladder talking about Jesus being one of those Jesus freaks, having a bigger mission than the company's mission to see people come to know Jesus. That's going to be a threat to the boss. He's going, "Ah, what's this guy all about? Do your work, man. Stop talking about sin and hell and, and grace and all this other stuff. We're in Silicon Valley. We don't believe, we stopped believing that years ago. You don't want to be one of those guys. So you start to just zip it, start to water down some of those convictions, start to, Because you got to get that promotion. How else are you going to get the promotion? What you got to do, just what you got to do here. See how everything else is slowly, subtly, even God himself is being put on the altar to work. It's the sort of thing that starts to happen. Your whole life gets shaped or misshaped by your fundamental love for this false God we call work. Um Uh we just this past week watched this uh movie, I don't know if you heard of it, um, called Free Solo. It's really a documentary about the guy, his name is Alex Honnold, who free solo climbed, which means without ropes, okay? Free solo climbed uh in Yosemite uh El Capitan or El Capitan, um which was absolutely crazy and even guys who do that say this is insane, right? But this guy's passion and really actually his job too, is 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 to mountain climb it's what he lives for and there's this tragic scene where his girlfriend at the time and they show it on camera which is awkward and interesting but she looks at him and 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 she says hey um if this thing gets more and more serious with you and me and you know maybe we you know you know we have kids and things like that and there's more to kind of lose you know like if you fall to your death there's like more to lose If I kind of say, hey, can we pull back from some of this risk and some of this stuff a little bit? Do you think you'd be open to that? And he just looks at her and he says, no. You wouldn't want that. Because let me tell you something. If you took away the thing I love more than anything, I would just end up resenting you. And that wouldn't be good for us. It's just this heartbreaking moment. You see it on her face as she just kind of recognizes that she is second place, and may always be. In other words, what he looks at her and says is, "I have a fundamental love, honey, and you are not it. Therefore, if you threaten that love, I will. You will. You will find yourself on the altar." Because I'm a climber. That's where my identity is. Where my life. It's where that's where my my joy is found. It's what I do. We can get like that. Be surprised if that guy makes it to forty years old before he's fallen off a cliff somewhere. It will literally destroy him. Now. You can do the same sort of thing with a bunch of other stuff in your life. I mean, you might think of how this works with a significant other if they become an ultimate thing. It's a good thing to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or whatever it is. But you imagine, and we've watched this play out, especially in college ministry, for goodness sake, this was happening all the time. I just long for this so badly. right? I want this significant other in my life. Oh, I love God and I'll hold strong. But then a few months in when he's saying, listen, if you don't start sleeping with me, if you don't start doing X, Y, and Z, I'm bailing, and she's torn, well, what we have is so good, and I don't know, maybe God, you know, okay, maybe I will. You better be an amazing dude, if you are willing, to lay God, Jesus, the banquet of the, of the kingdom of heaven, on that altar for Him. In those moments, and yet that's the sort of thing that that happens, right? Or we could talk about how this works with our our, our kids, even. So sometimes children become that ultimate thing—the thing that we're living for, the thing that we find our identity, our joy, our pleasure, the thing that we just can't we just can't surrender and give to God. We have these plans or ideas what we want for our kids, right? The things that we want to see, or whatever it may be. So like, if they're not liking church. Churches in there think, well, mm, ah, mm, hmm, maybe we don't have to go as often, sweetie. <laughs> there's other ways to get it. You know, we'll turn on VeggieTales. Do you like VeggieTales? <laughs> Whatever. Or maybe your kid wants to go to that, that sleepover that you know there's going to be shady stuff going down. But if you're the one who calls the parents and says no and stands up, puts your your neck, you know, in the game and says, no, you're not going to go because I love you. And God wouldn't want you in the middle of that. If if, if you step in there, you know you're not going to be the cool parent anymore and your kid's going to hate you for a few years maybe. And then they'll love you, hopefully. But you, ah, okay, let's forget the convictions. Forget all that. I want want my kid to like me it's i want to be cool you know you can see the sort of lengths that we can go to this sort of thing even in the news right um all the stuff that went down with the whole college admission scandal okay like even becky katsopoulos gets caught up in the middle of this that broke my heart full house mommy becky katsopoulos no that's not supposed to be, but it's what happens you have ideas for what you want for your kids, what their success is going to look like. You're willing to do all manner of stuff and throw your money at it to, just to make it happen. We'll sacrifice. It will shape all this other stuff in your life because that is your ultimate. Jesus is not. Being harsh here, he is loving us well when he says everything in your life needs to be surrendered or it will ultimately destroy you and keep you from the banquet table in heaven. You could run this in the other direction, and I'll just do it with the first example of work. If 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 Jesus gets a hold of our hearts and we can let... Go of work rather than, rather than putting everything under that. If, if, if instead everything is under Jesus, including our jobs and stuff, then guess what? You can watch the other guys climb the ladder. And you can, you can tap them on the back and say, well done. And at 5.30 or whatever it is, you can stop. You can go home. You know, the world keeps carrying on without you and then it's going to be okay if you're forgotten or if you're not on top of the list and you could stand up for Jesus in the middle of the 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 meeting or whatever it is you can you can be more uh, out there about your faith because you know that ultimately your provision doesn't come from this job it comes from him and so what in the world do you think your father's going to going to abandon you because you because you stood for him he's going to let his kids go hungry because of that i mean he may. I don't know. But if you were even die of starvation, and then your eyes suddenly open, you want to know where you'll be? <laughs> Around the banquet table of the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> so, your life can be shaped for good um, if Jesus gets a hold, if Jesus has your fundamental love. Um if jesus i should say is your fundamental love now i could keep going with all these examples but i won't we'll probably talk more about these things next week for now let's move to the third thing i wanted to bring out for us this morning namely the compelling invitation so um i've seen a surprising threat a fundamental love now a compelling invitation um in the parable Jesus tells, when when the man's servant returns to tell him that all who originally RSVP'd for his banquet have now at last declined, uh, the man is certainly angry at the disrespect he's been shown. He prepared all of this, and, and, and no one's coming. No one's here, but his purpose will not ultimately be thwarted. He just broadens out the guest list. He just broadens out the guest list. And uh, the picture here is wonderful What Jesus is painting for us. It's this idea that really, uh, like through the prophets and things, God has been coming after his people. In particular, the leaders there in Israel telling, listen, the Messiah is coming. The banquet's getting prepared. It's going to be awesome. But then the Messiah shows up and all the leaders and all the people who, sh- who should know best. Are the guys who are saying, nah, no, thank you, I don't want it, uh, may I please go, I'd rather be doing this, oh, let me keep up with the religious stuff, the polite, respectful, good stuff, but just my heart, nah, it's going to be far, I want it over here. And um, all that's going down, and so what's happening is Jesus is on the scene, and what's pictured here in this parable is the movement of the gospel out. Okay, so let's take the gospel, let's take the invitation, verse 21, to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Interestingly, it's the same sort of people we're told to invite to our dinner parties, back up in verse 13. If the people uh, on kind of the top of the social ladder here in Israel are not responding, let's go to the lower rungs. And they start to respond. They're open. Why? Because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. See, these guys over here with their worldly stuff, that that's the danger. The good stuff can keep you from the best thing. Because they got all this stuff. Ooh, we like this. We like what we're enjoying over here. We're busy with all these things. Ah, Can we please be excused? But over here, these guys are going, man, we got nothing. Are you serious for being invited to a party? Yes. Thank you. And they're filing in. They're filing in. But I wonder if you noticed, even after this, verse 22, there is still room. The servant comes back and says, okay, this is great. They're coming in. There's the line at the door. Here they come. But listen, I'm looking and I'm realizing there's still going to be room. What do you want me to do? So the man, uh, the master of the house here, sends his servant out again. Where in the first place the servant was sent to the streets and lanes of the city, verse 21, now the servant is sent out to the highways and hedges that expand even outside beyond the city, verse 23. This is awesome. This is amazing. It's a stunning picture, really. Uh, it's an illustration, even an anticipation of what's going to happen in gospel mission. What's going to happen in God's mission through the church as the gospel advances. Not just, uh, you know, moving you know, from the leaders to the rest in the lower places in Israel, but actually out beyond to the Gentiles. That's the idea. That's the idea. Almost the two phases to the kingdom that we see Jew and then Gentile, or as, as um, Acts would put it, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, but then Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's where the kingdom is going. Or in the words of our text, from the streets and lanes within the city to the highways and hedges that expand beyond it. The invitation is going out and people are coming in. And the master of the house, God, the Father, he will not settle for an empty seat he will not put up with an empty seat his house will be full his table will be full I do suppose then that it would be appropriate for me as we close here to send this invitation out once more to us in this room the invitation has reached us and we were not there within the boundaries of Israel it's passed beyond through the highways and the hedges. And it's come to us. And I recognize that uh, some even in this room may in fact be sitting on that invitation going, I'm not so sure. I don't know what I should do with it. And we could say that honestly there is no more important matter uh, that you will have to decide on in your entire life than what you will do with this invitation. than whether you will come to this banquet or not whether you will make excuses or you will make haste. Um, when you're weighing these matters and you're thinking about, will I come, will I not? It occurs to me that there are really two sides to the decision. They need to be kind of weighed out and considered. Um, on the one side, we could put it more negatively like this. Um, we need to ask the question, how desperate do we feel? Do we see the desperate state that we are really in? The big problem with the guys who are making excuses, as I just kind of mentioned, is because the the, the big problem is their life is going well, and they don't see it. Remember in the beginning, I talked about the guys at the table. They're self-assured, self-congratulating. Blessed are those who will eat bread around the, the table in the kingdom of heaven. Woo! See you there! They're sure that they will be there. They're sure God would never let them out. look at look at who they are so they're over here not feeling so desperate so they're not super worried about declining this invitation they got a lot of other stuff to worry about they're very important people but then over here the blind the crippled the lame the bankrupt all these people they're going yes They say, man, I don't even know where my next meal was going to come from. And we could take that spiritually. And and, and those are the sorts of people that respond to the invitation. Those are the sorts of people that we want to be. We want to see the truth about ourselves. Namely, we are sinners. And we are in a desperate place. That we are, like Jonathan Edwards would say, hanging by by a silk thread over the fires of hell. That the anger of God is justly Stored up for us. The wrath of God, as Jesus would say, even to the leaders there in Israel, abides on you. That we are the rebels. That we are the wicked. We are the ones that would sacrifice all manner of stuff, even God Himself, to our little idols and our little plans. No problem. Do we see how desperate our state is? If we don't, the invitation will seem like something we can put on the fridge and maybe get to in a week or so when we see how our schedules feel it, filling out. But if we see it, everything else in our life will suddenly become secondary. We've got to handle this. Let me, let me put it this way. If I were to tell you that, oh, actually, I just saw on the news, they, they know. Technology has, has, <laughs> has risen to such a degree. We know that tomorrow an earthquake, a tremendous earthquake is going to strike the Bay Area. We know where it's going to hit and we know that your house is right on the fault line. It's going to be gone. Let me ask you something. Do you go home from that announcement and worry about the dust that's collecting on your mantle? Oh, we, how many times do I got to get my rag out and take care of it? You're not worried about that at all i got to take care of this escape route. How am I going to get out with my life? Right? Who cares if my house is clean if it's going to be sucked up in an earthquake tomorrow? And I don't have breath in my lungs. And it's the same sort of thing with this decision. We just put it off and distract ourselves with all these lesser things while we're not right with God. While eternity is not settled. It's foolish. But we could also come at this whole, um, this whole weighing, you know, the decision to come or not, to accept the invitation or not, from a more positive side. And that would be, do you really see what God has provided for you in Jesus? Do we really see the sufficiency of the atonement, the propitiation, the sacrifice made for us on the cross? Do we see the one who drank? This cup has my name on it. This cup of wrath. It has my name on it. The Son drinks it down. Jesus drinks it down. Why is he doing that? Why is he drinking my cup on the cross? Why is he taking my wrath on the cross? So that he can invite you to the banquet. So that instead of the cup of wrath, he gives you the cup of blessing. That's what communion is. We're going to be coming to the Lord's table here in a moment. That's what it's all about, brothers and sisters. He lifts it up and he says, this is the cup, of the new covenant in my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. It may be so commonplace we don't think about it, but what he's saying is, I am drinking down death so that you can drink down blessing. So that you, bankrupt, poor, crippled, lame, blind as you are, can find your seat at this table. If we see that, if we get it, man, we want to come. Let me close by reading to you something that the prophet Isaiah spoke about um, uh, years and years prior to Jesus. Isaiah 25, 6-9. Isaiah is actually prophesying this end time banquet that we've all been invited to in Jesus. This is how he describes it. This is what he says. This is the invitation that stands for you, sinner though you are, in Jesus Come and partake of this. This is, this is what he says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. and rejoice in His salvation. That is the party you want to attend. All the other earthly parties are lame. Don't you see it? Jesus, when He warns and even when He rebukes, He is at the same time inviting you into something so much more. All of that other stuff, the tables of this world, will misshape you and ultimately destroy you. And to receive that invitation would mean declining this invitation. So leave that. Let all things go to come to this table. We'll wait for our God. We'll trust in our God. can't wait. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that even now you would spread the table in our midst. I ask that the communion table that we have here would be a place of feasting for your children. That we would feast by faith on the grace that you have provided for us in Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you. And I'll pray for those that are on the fence, those that are sitting on the invitation, those that are making excuses. God, I pray that even this week you would show them, you would start to show them how the, the 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 things that they're unwilling to let go of are misshaping them and ultimately destroying them with anxiety and all manner of other things. And how your call to let things go isn't a call to destroy, it's a call to live. Be restored. To feast. Help us, we pray. Amen.